Steven and let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 moving just a little bit faster than we have sometimes in, in the past but Matthew chapter 26 and we're down to verse 31 where Jesus again goes back and there's a lot of repetition in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus continually goes back and reconnects things. And again, we go back to the, the first part of this chapter uh, with the issues of our worship of God, our prayer, our giving, our, our prayer, our fasting, and forgiveness. You've got to get those settled. Then, where is our treasure? You have the right treasure. You'll have the right heart. You have the right light. You'll have the right understanding. And, and by the way, I, I hope I don't sound too repetitious on this, but if you have the wrong light, you will be the last one to figure it out. That's what it means But when it says, if the light be in thee, in the, if the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? You think it's light. I mean, how many... Uh, there's been books. How many remember Shirley MacLaine? The prophetess of Satan is what she really is. She talks about being embraced by the light. But it's the angel of light, the devil... Not anything that comes from the Bible. And uh, the, the Bible is very, very clear. When you accept this darkness for your light, when you accept this truth, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I don't know very many people that think and desire to go to hell and destroy their lives. Everybody thinks it's going to turn out okay. But if you don't have the right light, it's not going to turn out okay. It just isn't. And you have to have the right master. Now, Jesus goes immediately from you cannot serve two masters into... This idea of taking no thought, verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment. Now skip down to verse 31. Therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. 
Now, one of the great temptations as we're going through here is we are addressed for the second time talking about the kingdom of God. And in certain circles, there's quite an issue and argument of whether the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same place or, or whether one's inside the other or whether one's here and all of this. And this is really not the place to deal with that. Uh, we'll take some other time and take a Thursday night when we finish the Sermon on the Mount because we don't want to get sidetracked uh, trying to disprove all the wrong things that everybody talk about the kingdom of God. If, if you go back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus in verse 20 says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the, Pharise- of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter in to the kingdom of heaven And right here, he tells us in verse 33, but to seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, that ought to simplify things greatly. The phrases are being used basically interchangeably. Heaven is where God lives. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is basically the same thing. And there's people that have written books on the subject and would argue all day long. Uh, and that's not what we have time for tonight. The theme of the Sermon on the Mount is entrance to the kingdom of heaven, obtaining eternal life. And if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to seek first the kingdom of God. And if those are two different places, you're going to find yourself in a lot of theological problems. And we'll just end it there. So, as, as we go on here, Jesus the second time tells us to take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? Now, how many times during the week do you ask yourself, what am I going to eat for dinner? Is this what the passage is talking about? No. We come back to the first word, and it is therefore. Whenever you see therefore, because of, wherefore in the Bible, we are connecting to what has already been said, to the immediate context. We need to go back a little bit. Okay, God provides food for the pigeons. Aren't you better than a pigeon? I would hope to tell you. If God provides food for the pigeons, what are you worried about? Now, some of you might remember back when you were very little children or reading about it in books and things, as I have in the 1950s, one of the big selling items in the United States was a homemade, not a homemade, was a custom fabricated bomb shelter that you could build into your backyard in case the Soviets ever unleashed their nuclear arsenal in our direction. Common sense 
and scientific proof teaches us that if you had such a thing in your backyard, if you had a backyard to put such a thing in, it would do you absolutely no good at all if you were within anywhere within the kill zone of a nuclear weapon. Uh, yes, you're better underground than you are above ground, but it's radiation passes through things. And it will poison you underground just as easily as it does above ground. In fact, we have a little sign out on the building that says, Fallout Shelter. Now, I have no clue as to what they're talking about because we have windows all the way up and down the basement. There is not one room in this entire building that can actually be sealed. Uh, if you want protection, you've got to have an airtight seal and still not suffocate in the room. Uh, we don't have that equipment here. And by God's grace, we're not going to invest the tens of thousands of dollars it would take to build such a place because it would only be big enough for one or two people. Uh, and that wouldn't do any good. If God takes care of the birds, is He capable of taking care of you? You know, there are people that invested their life savings in these home in these bomb shelters and built them and stored food in them in their backyard and did all of these things to prepare. Just be careful you don't find one by accident by falling through the roof of one today. Amen. Uh, they did not, nor could they, in all actuality, have done very much at all to protect you if you had one. And yet there were people that took everything they had so that somehow they could be prepared. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the motivational direction of your life. What changes your behavior? Every one of us have certain things that will motivate you, that will make decisions for you. And Jesus is saying, listen, the procurement of your daily food ought not be a motivational issue in your life, it ought not change the direction that you move in. And you have to remember here, let's take a few moments and go back into the context, the historical setting of this message. Jesus was preaching to an agricultural society that in the vast part, the people raised the food that they ate with their own hands. It's what we call a subsistence economy. You had to be very wealthy to afford to hire or own the servants that would provide a bounty for you where you could actually take part of what you produced and sell it. If you were producing the food that fed your family, let me tell you, it would take six days a week 10 to 12 hours a day, all during the growing season, just to get 
enough food to live. It was a lot of work. They talk about the old farm and the family farm. Well, that's really a a misnomer in many ways. Because the family farm was usually a wonderful way to supplement the wages of the main bread earner that, that worked. And you went and you bought your main staples. You bought your flour. You bought your sugar. You bought your coffee. You grew most everything else. But the money that you had to pay your bills and to pay your mortgage and all of these things usually came from Dad going out. My grandfather lived this way. He was a miner. He worked in the coal mines all his life in central Pennsylvania. The family farm provided much of the food and much of of the things that they needed, but clothes, they didn't make their own clothes other than going down to the store and buying the fabric and making them. Now, that's different than in the colonial, in the pioneer days, where you had, if you didn't make it, you didn't get it. When you were living in the wilderness, you couldn't make a journey to town to buy material. You had to make your own material. They would take the heavy farm instruments and they would disconnect the steel from the wood because they could always re-carve and remake the wooden parts when they got over the mountain into the wilderness, but they didn't want to have to burden themselves carrying all those extra things that they could make out there. That's something that was going on in Jesus' day. If you did not make it with your own hands, you didn't have it. And so a great deal of your time was spent procuring just the necessary things to survive. It talks in the Bible on many different occasions that an employer was to send home the wages of his employee every day. You say, get paid every day. Yes, paid every day. Here's the reason why. If that man did not take those wages home with him and buy food on the way home, his family went without dinner that night. You see, the way they lived is so foreign from us today, it's really hard to comprehend and grab these things and and understand. And yet, I'll, I'll tell you, in our modern society, where we... We have multiple changes of clothes. They had one suit of clothes. It was what they wore. If something happened to that, you had to make new material. How many of you have ever seen the old spinning wheels? That was rocket science compared to what they did. Has anyone seen what they used before the spinning wheel? have a little wooden, it looks like a top with a long handle. And you would take the fibers and twist them together and you would spin that top as you twisted the fibers together and that's how you made thread. 
you know how much thread it takes to make a shirt? If anybody wants to research that and find out how many hundreds of yards or miles of thread goes into the average shirt, that'd be an interesting little bit of information to have. But I'll tell you, it was an incredible process. That's why they gambled for Jesus' garments. Because clothing was something that you did not have. No one except the king had a closet full of robes which he could choose from. We, we live in a society that is just beyond imagination when it comes to having the things of this world. But I want to challenge you. We spend as much or more time thinking and being controlled by these things than those who had to spend 12 hours a day just to get enough food to eat and enough cloth to make clothes to cover themselves. This is what Jesus is speaking against. Have you ever met someone who just lived for the next sale? I mean, it was just... I mean, that was the greatest thing that was ever happened. Is they're having a sale. I'm going to go. They only have this sale once a year every other week. And if I don't get there, I'm going to miss out on something. Here's what Jesus said. Listen, God provides food for the birds. He dresses the flowers of the field more beautifully than any human being has money or ability to dress themselves. And by the way, I've been reading commentaries and things and... It talks about this adding a cubit. It says, now, the, the train of thought here is very uh, simple, easy, excuse me, things that you can change. No, here's the idea of the passage. This is why Jesus put it in there. There's an awful lot that happens in our lifetime and as we live that you can do nothing about. How many of you wish you could do something about the economic turndown in our country? Wouldn't that be wonderful if you could do something about it? But with our government doing everything to propagate it, it's going to be very, very difficult for you as an individual to do anything to stop it. Let me tell you. It's... Absolutely impossible for you to change a lot of things about your life. When the government raises your taxes, are you going to do something about it? Say, yeah, I'm not going to pay them. Please don't do that. The Bible says you're not to do. You're, you're to pay your taxes. Be honest. Don't lie about things. When 9-11 happened, what could you do about it? If someone decides to declare war on the United States, are you going to do anything about it? If we wake up in the morning and the dollar is valued at nothing, are you going to change those facts? 
Absolutely. There, there is so much in life you can do nothing about. And Jesus is saying, listen, I take care of the birds. I dress the fields, uh, the flowers of the field. I spend all of this time with these meaningless things. And there's an awful lot in your life and in your existence that you can do nothing about. But what do we do about these things we can do nothing about? We complain about them. We grape about them to our friends. We get around the water cooler at work and we solve all the world's problems. Uh, we, we say we, know, we listen to talk radio and, man, I mean, those guys got to be the smartest guys in the world. But if they were half as smart as they thought they were, why wouldn't somebody be doing some of the things they talk about? Just gets a little scary, doesn't it? Here's what Jesus is saying. He, give, he takes care of food. He takes, he's going to take care of the raiment. There's a lot of things you can't change, no matter how much you worry and no matter what effort you put into it. It'd be just like trying to add 18 inches to your height. I mean, aren't you glad you can't do that? If Andrew decided he was going to add 18 inches to his height, he'd just have to turn sideways and he'd disappear. Uh, I mean, you can't add 18 inches to your height, but if you could, what would it do to you? Uh, I can tell you, nothing good. And so, as we get down here, Jesus is saying, Wherefore, because of all these things, don't be motivationally controlled by what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to wear. Is this what your life is about? Because then comes the rejoinder. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Have you ever caught yourself saying, I just want to be able to pay my bills and live a good life. I I don't want to be rich. I don't want to have so much I have to worry about it. I just want to be comfortable. Has anybody ever thought that? That's what the world thinks. That's not godly thinking. That's worldly thinking. Why do I want to be comfortable? So I can eat, drink, and be merry. Been reading the book of Ecclesiastes in your Bible reading? Solomon said, that's what I tried to do. But it's vanity. It's emptiness. It's less than nothing. No matter how much you eat, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be hungry again. And by the way, if you never get hungry again, you're not going to live very long. It's just part of living. And don't do 
what was that, uh, the Coney Island hot dog eating contest? I think it was like 56 hot dogs this year. A new world record. I can guarantee he was sick for about three days. But I promise you by now he's hungry again. If you're not careful, your entire life is going to be determined by what you eat, what you drink, and what you wear. That is the world. That is mammon. Jesus warned us that we cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. Now, there's a different approach here in the second half of the verse. It says, For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Now, we got to get that little word your in there. That is a possessive pronoun. Jesus is speaking to people who are entering the kingdom. People who have a father-son relationship with the Heavenly Father. People who have been born again. People whose righteousness, and we'll get to that in a minute, exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It says, For your Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. We've been doing... A lot of renovations here in the building, and then we got into this uh, situation upstairs in the apartment and been working up there for the last several weeks and trying to get everything come and uh, put back together again. And every once in a while, well, about every day or so, someone comes running down the stairs with a major emergency. Dad, did you know? And they start telling me, and almost always. I just give them one of those looks. Oh, you you know about it already. Yeah. It's okay. No, we we figured that out. But Dad, you're going to really be upset when you find out about this. No. I already know about it. I know what happened. God says, listen, I know. I I get a little tired of being accused of being ignorant by my children. Just to be plain with you. Right, Stephen? Yes. Do you think God gets tired of us complaining to Him and telling Him about these things that are just major emergencies in our life? I think he gets real tired. I think one of the reasons God gives us children is because he wants us to have to put up with just a little bit of what he has to put up with from us. And you can learn an awful lot. And it says, For your heavenly Father knoweth. Now that T-H is a tense in the English language that we've basically lost in our modern English It is a continuing. It's the closest thing we have to it is ing. 
if we were to try to put this in modern English, it says, for your heavenly Father always knows or is all-knowing, is constant, knows every need that you have. It is constantly, it is completely. God does not have to stop and say, okay, Brother Franz Remigio, okay, I, he lives in Astoria. Let me get out his list here. What does he need? That's what we do. God doesn't have to think. He already knows. God doesn't have to put two and two together and get four. He knows the answers before you ask the questions. He knows the end before the beginning. To God, everything is present. He knows every need. He knows that we have need. Now look at the words here. Your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. You know what? He didn't leave out one thing there, did He? He says, your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Um, Can I remind you, He is the Creator. He's the one who made us. He ought to know what will keep us running. Amen? By the way, when He taught us how to pray in this sermon, give us this... Does anybody remember? Day, our daily bread. You're supposed to pray for this. And by the way, God doesn't want you in your home, on your knees, praying for your bread while you should be out in your garden tilling the ground either. Or at your job working. But what God is saying, listen, God knows what you need. He knows everything you need. We trust God with our soul. But we worry how God's going to help us pay our bills this month. Does that make any sense? It ought not. We make decisions based upon how we're going to provide for ourselves... And we leave God out of the equation, and then we wonder why life is so difficult. And there's so many struggles, and and things aren't working out quite the way. The will of God is never determined by these things. Uh, if, If there is any point to this message that I could just drill into each heart and soul, it's this one here. We make decisions every day based on... What I'm going to eat, how I'm going to take care of my physical needs, how I'm going to provide for myself. God says, listen, I don't want you worrying about that. You let me worry about that. Here's what I want you to do. Verse 33, a verse that most of us have memorized. But if you have it memorized, say it with me. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. 
Now, the way we do things is we get a hold of something we think we can put our hands on, and we want to do that thing. God says, no, you seek first. Seek ye first. Now, the idea of seeking, the best illustration I can give you is if I went to the bank, and we're joking now, of course, and got one of those stacks of $100 bills, $1,000 in one of those little nice little ribbons they put it in. And I said, I've hidden that in this auditorium somewhere, and the first one that finds it can have it. There'd be people ripping apart seat cushions, throwing things in the air, stepping on other people, hurting people, so they could find that. You say, Pastor, we're Christians here. We wouldn't act that way. I'm not going to go get a stack of $1,000 and try to find out and prove that we wouldn't act that way because there are some here who would. If it was really true... You don't know what you'd do. You'd see it and you'd pull it right out of someone else's hand. I found it first. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. No, that's not in the Bible, my friend. But that's what the word seek is. All these things. You couldn't buy very many of all these things with a $1,000. $1,000 doesn't go very far today, does it? If you had to eat in restaurants, how long would $1,000 last? Not very long. Not even in McDonald's. Listen. We put out a lot of energy for little things. And we expend very little energy on the very important things. Seek. Now, that next word is very important. Ye. Ye is plural. It's not singular. You're not alone in what you are seeking. Now, I believe in the Bible being understood in its context. Don't confuse the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, with the local church. The local church is what functions today as we serve the Lord, as we're seeking that kingdom. And by the way, the local church is ye, not me. Amen? You have to have more than one. I think Jesus had the local church in mind when He said, Seek ye, because you're not going to get this done by yourself. We have a lot of Lone Ranger Christians out there who live all by themselves. and They'll show up to church when they really have a problem, but they can handle most of it. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Seek ye, and then the word first. You know, the word first means I'm not going to do anything else until first is taken care of. That's what makes it first. 
Now, here's how most of us deal with first. I'll get started on first, and then put it on the back burner, and then I'll do second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, all the easy stuff. And then we'll come back and try to finish first, and first never gets done. Because first is a lifelong endeavor. First will not be completed as long as your heart is beating and you are breathing air. First means to the exclusion of everything else. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. We're going to make the kingdom of God very simple. A kingdom is the area that is controlled by the king. That's how simple it is. That's what the word means. A king has control of his kingdom. Now, his kingdom may consist of his castle, period. It might even only be one or two little rooms in the castle, which might just be a shack instead of a castle. But, I mean, he is the king. Uh, Every time I read this, I think of the way things used to be in this building when it was a synagogue. The men were in control of everything. Then I met the third rabbi that uh, that, uh, was in charge of this synagogue. And the first question his wife asked when they visited the building, what did you do with the basement? said, well, we just cleared out all the rotten wood and poured three inches of concrete. And she turned around and tongue-lashed her husband. I mean, she just sliced and died. I told you that's what we should have done. I told you not to put a wood floor down on there and just rot like it did. And I mean, she the whole way down the basement. And he just following her like this, listening. You tell me who was... He was the rabbi. I mean, the big cheese. He was in charge of the whole thing. Uh, He was in charge of his office, let me tell you. (laughs) His kingdom was mighty small. But God is a very, how, how do we say this? Um, God is extremely benevolent in his desire to control. God will not force his kingdom upon those who don't want it. In fact, That's really, if you want to look at it in all of its reality, that's really what hell's all about. It's those who refuse to submit themselves to God's authority and live in the realm of His influence. Since He owns the entire universe, He had to make a special place for people who refused His authority. That's what hell is all about. It's not about God's anger and God's hatred of people. It's about people's refusal to submit themselves to the authority and the sovereignty, the direction of God. His kingdom is where He is king. 
Now, that has two aspects. Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, Don't say, Lo, neither here nor there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. That's where God wants to be king first. If you're going to seek the kingdom of God, you must make sure that your life is in the sphere of God's influence and God's direction. Let me ask you a question. What decision did you make today that brought you within the influence and under the submission to the King that is God? You say, well, I'm not quite sure. Um, Well, how many of you went to work today? Now, how many of you did what you did at work because you're going to get a paycheck at the end of the week, and if you don't do what you're told, you're not going to get your paycheck? Okay. You were seeking what the Gentiles seek when you do that. If I go to work and do what I'm doing because God's given me an opportunity to seek His influence in my life and my submission to His will, then I'm seeking the kingdom of God. Do you see the difference between the two? Do we need to go back and start over again? You see, I don't do the things I'm supposed to do just so I can get something. That's the motivation of all the world. I do what I'm supposed to do so that I can be a better servant of Jesus Christ. That's seeking God's kingdom first. Unfortunately, that'll put that dirty old so-and-so scoundrel, nasty, mean, evil boss in an entirely different light, won't it? Because I'm not doing what I'm doing just so I can manipulate my boss enough to give me a paycheck on Friday and not fire me before then. I'm doing what I'm doing because I want my life to count for Christ. And by the way, let me put this in context. Who was the government when Jesus was preaching these words? Well, the Jewish people had their Sanhedrin and they had their little bit of scribes and Pharisees. But the real government was Rome. One of the most despotic evil, tyrannical empires in the history of mankind. When Rome came into the land of Israel, they took the main highway north and south. They go in from Galilee, the whole way down through the um, uh, Samaria and into Judea to the city of Jerusalem. Now the Jews, they wouldn't travel the Samaritan part. They crossed the Jordan River, came down and came back across. But there was a main road They went right down through the land of Israel, and Roman soldiers, every so many feet, planted a cross and hung a Jew on it the entire 120 miles of that road. That was the government. 
Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. How can I allow God to be in control of my thoughts and my deeds and my motivation? We have a lot of talk of motivational speakers. And, And what really motivates you? How many of you have heard a real motivational speaker. I mean, you've been in the audience, you sat face to face with them and you heard them speak. Has anybody ever done that? If they're good, you leave that place and the only thing you can think is what they told you to think. Isn't that true? Nod your head up and down if you've heard a real motivational speaker. I mean... I know some preachers that call themselves preachers. They're not preachers. They're motivational speakers. Because you're not thinking about God. You're not thinking about the gospel. You're not thinking about your Bible. You're thinking about what that guy said. You better watch out. That's the difference between a preacher and a motivational speaker. You want to be thinking about what God said in this book called the Bible. You see, we can get ourselves all motivated to do something, but what normally happens? I remember when I was in Bible college, a, uh, a friend of mine said, you got to go hear this thing. There's an opportunity for you to make all this money, $1,000 a month or a week or whatever. And Okay, okay. Was selling waterless cookware, door to door. I found out how you could make all that money. You borrowed it from the company at like 18 or 20% interest. This was 25 years ago. You didn't make anything. They set you up with two or three sweetheart deals. What that was was where somebody from the company bought the cookware and then... You got the commission to make you feel like you could sell it to anybody and then you went out and you sold all this stuff and and ended up owing the company thousands and thousands of dollars. That's the way the devil always works. It says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to stop right here, but I want you to think about something. The kingdom is where the king reigns. What can I do tomorrow? What can I do with my life that is going to put God more in control of me? What is going to happen to, in, what needs to happen to make me more submissive, to make me part of that sphere where God is the king, where he's the one that's calling, making the decisions. I was going to say calling the shots, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the God who makes the decisions. If he's the king then he ought to tell us what to do and how to do it. 
And by the way, when the king tells you what to do and how to do, it's the king's responsibility to supply, to supply the wherewithal to get it done, is it not? That just goes right with the, the, the entire understanding of the king and the kingdom. And so we're going to stop right here. But I want you to ask that question. It wouldn't be bad to ask yourself that question every day. Is my life under control of the king? You see, oh boy, we don't have time. But we'll talk about the coming kingdom in two weeks. But I want you to think about the kingdom. Where the king rules. That's what salvation is, is it not? Every day ought to be the same. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would work in our lives, that you would help us to understand what this whole thing of the kingdom of heaven is about. That we would not get caught up chasing theological yarns, but Lord, we would strive to live within the realm of the influence of God. We ask that you would help us to be mindful that the decisions that we make will be the decisions that you would make for us and not our own. Help us, Lord. Teach us. In your name we pray. And before we finish that prayer...